This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Accounting for choices in published scenarios. Many-faced King Arthur. Sarah Bernhardt's Chimera Inkwell. And the alien love of New Mexico. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice or the flip of cards, the thump of miniatures or the squeak of markers, the crunch of Doritos or the crunch of Cool Ranch Doritos, Welcome us once more into the gaming hut where all four faces of Peter Frampton gaze down because we are talking choice in scenarios and not just choice in the scenarios we run at the table, but the choices that Robin and I and our fellow scenario crafters make uh, ahead of time and then offer. The question being, how many choices, because players, of course, are infinite, can a designer account for in a published scenario? And Obviously, you can't possibly cover everything a player might do. So how do we narrow it down, Robin? Right. And so we're addressing this both to uh, the many of you who are interested in writing published scenarios and also for people who use published scenarios and are working to break them down and understand them. And so the basic contradiction we need to grapple with, first of all, is that the more engaging a scenario is to read as a narrative, the tougher it is to run in play because something that reads in a linear fashion probably makes a lot of assumptions about what the player choices are and what you can induce the players to do. Whereas the more possible options you take into account, the more options the GM and players will have at the table, the less surprised the GM will be uh, when players do something. But 
that is harder to write. The more ifs you write into a scenario, it's just even difficult to like structure within a section. It's like, well, mm -hmm. if the players decide to go in the back way, here's what happens. If they decide to go talk to the person in the front, here's what ha happens. There's real flow issue in getting the text and having people be able to follow the text. And it's an organizational thing as well. And of course, I guess the other preamble thing is that different styles of scenario call for different levels of attention to player choice. So something that is, here's a particular story that you're going to have your players interact with will require you, the writer, to grapple more with the different choices that players can make within that than the other style of scenario, which is, here's a situation, here's all the places and NPCs and uh, basic premise, and then after that, react to what the players do. Uh, that's less compelling to read, easier to write, and may or may not be easier to play, depending on whether the uh, GM is uh, someone who can look at, oh, yeah, yeah, react to the players. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what I want to do versus I need guidance in crafting a story. I'm looking for that for the published scenario. So, Ken, what, where do you draw the line, assuming something that is more than just here's the parts, figure it out? Well, as you know, Robin, I'm a giant fan of here's the parts, figure it out. I, in fact, that's why I posed the question with that caveat, <laughs> even named it a thing to make it sound uh, cool and respectable. The ocean of clues. I think that with some scenarios, and I think we should address the brilliance of the dungeon as a scenario in that it constrains choice. You're in a dungeon. You can only go left or right. You can't go up because there's a ceiling and it's, yeah. you know, got a mountain on Yet top at the of same you. time offers a great multitude of choice in that each door is a separate scene. Right. Yeah. So it's a, so it's a brilliant way to, I think, begin to think about, uh, you were talking about the presentation of things because you have to think of the constraints on action that exist and maybe none exist. Maybe you're in a completely wild game like tune where literally anything can happen. Or maybe you're in a game where players are superheroes or something. And so they have a lot of power and they can make stuff happen. Even if you think that there's a constraint. Uh, so presenting it then really has to turn on personalities in the sense that you really have to provide some sort of mechanism by which the, uh, environment decides what to do in response. And this can be as simple as saying, you know, Dr. Doom doesn't care what the superheroes do. He just wants to destroy uh, the Empire State Building and he will level every effort to do so. And he can't be talked down and he can't be negotiated with. And you just have to stop Dr. Doom from destroying the Empire State Building. And that's your job. And however you do it is up to you. And so that's the sort of constraint that you put on it by opponent action. I think that those stories are generally a little unsatisfying to play out for the reasons that you mentioned. So what I try to present, if I'm doing a relatively narrow scenario, is think about it either personality-wise, present those foes or antagonists with their goals that can then be undermined, ideally by intelligent player action, or... Again, constrain it geographically, present it as here's the building you have to rob and here's all the possible things that can go wrong when you're robbing the building. And again, allow a lot of freedom for the environment to react. There are X number of guards. They are armed thusly. One of them is psychic. Whatever it is that you present as the oppositional force, you know, 
I think providing them with nuance and different kinds of reaction is almost as good as a straight up dungeon constraint where, nope, you can only go left or right, pick, because it's harder to do that in a modern day scenario. Although plenty of people have. Um, the, the heist scenario is actually a, a good example of that is that you have a generally a, a map and some treasure and some guards, and then you have to get the treasure through the map without alerting too many guards. And that's a dungeon. One temptation as a scenario writer is to try and impose a single narrative. And it is useful as an exercise, I think, to go at least for one or two scenarios, think about taking on board one or two more choices uh, and big choices than you ordinarily would in uh, running something. So you might decide, as I've done in some cases, of you know, the players roll up in this new town in Glorantha and they have a choice as to which faction to align with. So right. rather than the typical thing where find a reason for them to align with the Merchants Guild, I wrote a scenario where you might align with the Merchants Guild, you might go and uh, uh, work for the Hierarch, or you might uh, decide to work for the Evil Blue Sorcerers. And that radically changes the possibilities within the uh, scenario and the ability then allows the players to really feel like we didn't just get uh, decide to agree to accept the premise, but we got to pick between a variety mm -hmm. of different premises. That means you need to account for three possible parallel narratives. Spoiler, turns out everybody decides to work for the evil blue sorcerers. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you only wrote the evil blue sorcerer one, they all be, we don't want to work for the evil blue sorcerers. How dare, how very yeah, dare which you. It goes back to the old, if you don't want players to, if, oh, sorry, if you want players to do something, convince them that you don't want them to. Yeah. And so, you know, even a matter of their allegiance, the, the, ex, the value of the exercise of doing that, not only will you have a scenario at the end of the day that is very customizable in play and people can... You know, if they play it at a convention, they can compare different convention runs of it and have it be very different, but also that you, as the scenario writer, become more flexible in envisioning what it is that you can allow within the parameters of a single narrative. And that opens you up to breaking that habit of, well, of course, the players do this. And it's easier, of course, to have them accept the premise at the beginning. That's widely accepted. But often you will fall into the trap of, well, of course they're going to do this here, and then often they don't, and then you've left the poor GM high and dry. And part of that also is, is an object lesson to GMs when they are either improvising their own adventures or running their, writing their own adventures to run themselves, is to not be so locked in and to be prepared for uh, the players to contribute in a big way. And so in the olden days, uh, one of the main purposes of scenarios was to give the GM an example of what it is to play in this game, right? That, that you can, it's much harder to improvise a Trail of Cthulhu scenario if you haven't read any yourself. But then once you see a couple of them, you go, oh, okay, here's the formula. And by building lots of choice into the formula from the beginning, you're creating the flavor of that. Now, I think adventures have to do less work in that way because of the prevalence of actual play uh, podcasts and, and video that you can see what a Yellow King scenario is like or hear what a Yellow King scenario is like without necessarily reading a scenario. You can get more of the flavor of it that way. But I think still, even now, the scenario is not just about creating a specific thing for you to run at the table, but it's a teaching exercise, not just in here's when an adventure in this game is, but also here's how to GM if you don't yet have all of the GM skills required to just improvise off 
the top of your head. So it's an extension of the having a Ken in the box or having a Robin in the box exercise. Yeah, the um, notion of player choice, I think, is sort of important because it gets to almost the type of game or even the, the, the identity of the game that you're running. Because in Dungeons & Dragons, you can you can assume one motivation. In most superhero games, you can assume one motivation. In Cthulhu-y games, one motivation. In other games, in, you know, your Shadow Runs or your Rune Quests or your 13th Ages, players or vampire, they might be up to any kind of a thing. And so to run them into the Enigma, you have to present either, as you say, a bunch of different factions that they can join up with as they enter the setting, or hooks that might draw them into the setting, and then you lay it out by, which hook did you follow? Oh, this is the way into, ideally, this, the same one central problem. You know, there's a Shoggoth or a Sentient AI or a, you know, whatever the, the big problem is at the middle of the thing, but you have a bunch of different roads into it, and so... Each of those roads, as you map them, can then provide sidelights or other options for players who've come in one road. You know, they can hop the hedge, uh, metaphorically, and deal with the stuff that the other road offers before they get to the main, you know, central problem of the scenario, whatever it happens to be. And I think that it's the absence of thinking about roads in that is the, the biggest problem with published scenarios for these sorts of games. And the problem, of course, is that players can literally have any kind of a road in. I mean, even in Vampire, you, in theory, have, you know, 13 clans, any of which might send you to do such and so. You might uh, be running away from the prince. You might be Anarchs. You might be Camarilla. There, there's a million different kinds of, of initial states for the player character. And the more states to the player character, the more you have to think about how do they hear about the scenario and why do they care? And that is really where if you put the majority of your choices and options in there and then make sure that the GM feels free to use material established for the other choices or options, I think you're most of the way to writing a pretty robust scenario in play. And you can, you know, as the choices whittle down, as they funnel down to the main big thing, then the scenario becomes simpler and simpler. And then it's just, well, they might have any level of, of magic or powers or whatever, but at some level, they still have to, you know, fight this sentient AI or this, uh, or this Shoggoth or this, uh, robot head of Dr. Doom or, or whatever it is that's the main problem at the middle of the scenario. Right. And the advanced solution is to ensure that the choices that they make that you give them are not just cosmetic choices, but have an impact on the scenario, immeasurably so. So that if there's a, a city intrigue and investigation scenario and the players have, uh, you know, two or three possible starting points to start going at uh, this problem that they have and you can look for ways, well, it should matter, you know, if they go and uh, talk to the owls first, they get they have a chance of getting a special owl charm that they can then use at the flour mill if they go to the flour mill first, they get a piece of information uh, that they can use to intimidate the owls uh, and, you know, add a couple more things in there so that so that the players feel that, it, you know, there was some consequence to which they decided to tackle first, rather than just the sort of uh, dungeon analogy where, you know, it's basically a dungeon where if I go to the flour mill, I'm opening the flour mill door. If I go to the owl uh, hut, I'm opening the owl hut door, but they don't interact with each other. There's just a program scene that occurs 
either way and they don't affect each other. So mm-hmm. look for ways for the choices sort of in the midpoint of the scenario. Now they all probably converge on a, a single preferred climax, possibly with a couple of alternate climaxes kind of dashed off in a few uh, sentences as to, you know, other possible big finishes. Mm-hmm. Choice is great. The feeling of choice is great. The feeling of having that choice affect the rest of the story is really your, your most uh, desired goal. Uh, again, that requires more words, requires a higher word count, and requires more thinking about how the scenes might possibly interrelate to each other and how different alternate versions of the story might unfold. Yeah, and that is, you know, all of that comes from thinking of the, of the scenario as an organic whole, as opposed to as a bunch of channelized individual encounters, rooms in a dungeon, in an old school dungeon that had no ecology to it. You know, the more you can think about what is this entire experience like for the player characters, and then to a lesser extent, what do we want this to be like for the players? You can start to think, you can start to notice, oh, here's a weak spot. Here's an area where it seems a little, you know, thin and unsatisfying. What can I use from the other parts of the scenario to cross fertilize this? Can I give the players, this is a good place to add a choice, even if you, you feel like there isn't one. And that then will hopefully get you thinking about the ecology, the way that all of the bits of this scenario interact in the absence of the player characters. And so once the player characters appear, those choices should begin to fall out as relatively obvious. It's like, well, we know that, you know, the, uh, the blue sorcerers are going to, you know, try and uh, steal stuff from the merchants. And we know the merchants are going to try and, you know, convince a blue sorcerer to defect and use his sorcery for uh, economic gain or whatever it is. Those dynamics then can happen in the presence of the characters either inspired by the characters or as a thing the characters can choose or not choose to interfere with and uh, profit from, hopefully. Right. And the other thing is you do not need to have uh, choices in every single scene as long as enough of them do. Right. And particularly scenes that offer other different kinds of choices, like the tactical choices of a fight. Yeah. So you can just say, well, at some point, the vulture god spawn shows up and the players fight him and here's the consequence, there's a reason for doing that if they're working for the merchants, and here's the consequence if they uh, do well and uh, for that group, or here's the reason they'd fight them for the blue sorcerers and the the outgoing consequence. So you can sort of uh, economize on, on space, which is always at a premium. You, Unless you're self-publishing, you probably have a word count that you're trying to stay within. But you can find little bitlets that can plug into everything, and the players will still feel that they had a lot of choices because what they did before and afterwards matter. And speaking of before and afterwards, after this segment, which is now wrapping up, I believe there will be another one. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that 
material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The clanking of anachronistic armor and the uh, grouching and sitting down as we uh, all gather around this round table and wish that it had a hierarchy or perhaps at least a clear literary derivation. Tell us we're once more in the mythology hub because beloved Patreon backer Steve Dempsey uh, says that now that we think that King Arthur was a composite of five different people, how would you use this in a game? And of course, as a beloved uh, backer who knows how to compose a question, there's a URL to go to, and that refers to the theory of uh, Dr. Miles Russell, who's the author of a book called Arthur and the Kings of Britain. And this basically is uh, a rundown on all the other uh, sorts of historical kings who were used for inspiration when the writer's room of the King Arthur mythology all got together and thought, what plot elements would we like to put together to uh, come up with uh, King Arthur. So this is a literary approach. It goes beyond the old sort of eleptonic, here's the real King Arthur, and here's this real hill, and here's this treasure. And so, Ken, I believe you're going to run us through the five possible literary inspirations for Arthur. Yeah, and this is not an original theory, at least in its general outlines, that Miles Russell has proposed. Uh, Mike Ashley did it in the Mammoth Book of King Arthur. The notion that King Arthur is a composite character falls out of a lot of different yeah. scholars. It's not original because it is probably right. Right. And when you ask who is King Arthur, you're asking two different questions. You're asking, what is the legend of King Arthur come from? And I think that the correct answer of that is the answer given by Arthurian scholar Caitlin Green, who says it comes from the same place that all legends come from. You needed a big, tough guy who would, you know, invade hell and mess with your enemies. You gave him a name. The name was Arthur. You go on. Later, it gets attached to a uh, historical figure by Nennius in the 9th century and, and and by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 12th century. So that's one answer. The other question of who is King Arthur is, who was the guy who led the Britons against the Saxons on the Battle of Baden Hill and maybe other battles? And that question in theory could be answered. It probably can't be now because British epigraphy is, you know, shot to hell by coal mines and British archaeologists. But there was a person on that hill leading the Britons. In theory, you could say that guy is the real King Arthur. And the guy that most people assume it was is a guy named Ambrosius Aurelianus. And we assume that because he's named as the war leader of the Britons in a history book that was written, a chronicle, I think history book is maybe overstating the case, by the monk Gildas, who said, Ambrosius Aurelianus 
led the Britons against the hated Saxons. We loved him. Also, there was a big battle at Baden Hill. And many people have said, well, Gildas is just being weird. That's why he doesn't say Ambrosius Aurelianus led the battle. Other people say, oh, a different guy led the battle that Gildas was mad at. And that's why he didn't name him because he was having beef with the guy. Yes. Did that conjunction matter or right. was uh, Gildas just distracted by his cat? Exactly. And, and so uh, Nennius, the Welsh chronicler, answers that question in, as I mentioned, the ninth century when he says, oh, that guy was Arthur. But as Caitlin Green, among other people, point out, Arthur was a pre-existing Welsh mythological character. And so Nennius is just sort of historicizing that character in the same way that we would say, oh, uh, here's how Captain America saved the soldiers at the Battle of the Bulge. Now, we're not saying, you know, in our lives that Captain America was actually there. We're historicizing our legendary figure to make him cooler. And that is what Nennius in this version is doing to Arthur and then what Geoffrey of Monmouth does with his Arthur. So, leaving that aside, what Miles Russell is doing is trying to piece together the bits of older stories that went into Geoffrey of Monmouth's Arthur in the same way that you do textual analysis of the Bible and you say, oh, this must have been written by this kind of guy, and this was written by the priests, and this was written by a Greek scholar, and, and you, you sort of sort it all out and you figure out not a, none of it was written by Moses, five books were written by somebody, where did it come from? Miles Russell is doing this, but saying, when Geoffrey of Monmouth is assembling his Arthur what are the source materials from which he assembles them? And he says 16% of it, and this is his, I think, innovation is to provide spurious numbers for the uh, sourcing. And I assume this is just by word count or line count, but 16% of it comes from Ambrosius Aurelianus. As I mentioned, he is almost historical. He's mentioned by Gildas, who lived only 40 years after him. He was legendarily a boy king. He fought the Saxons in York and may have been the war leader at Baden Hill. Uh, the next source, 39%, according to Miles Russell, is a fellow named Magnus Maximus, who was a Roman and possibly uh, of some British ancestry. He uh, lived in Britain in the 370s, 380s. Uh, he fought the Picts. He led his troops into Europe and was acclaimed as the Emperor of the West. Again, Jeffrey's Arthur spends a lot more time invading Rome than you think of King Arthur doing nowadays. And Magnus Maximus became a Welsh founder hero named Maxon Wledig. And the notion being that Maxon Wledig is part of the Arthur mythos that Nennius drew on. So the notion that he, he founded all of these lineages and all the, and all the governances of Wales go back to Maxon Wledig. That's the part that Geoffrey picks up for Arthur. And remember, Geoffrey is, of course, right there on the boundary between Wales and England, and he's trying to please both the kings of Wales and the kings of England with this composite Arthur. Uh, the third figure is Constantine the Great, the Emperor Constantine. We've all heard of him. Another guy who was in Britain, led the British troops in uh, the 300s, uh, fought against the Picts. He became uh, Caesar in Britain in 306, led his troops into Europe against Rome, uh, famously beat Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge, becomes co-emperor in 314 and then sole emperor and a great figure in Christianity because he's the guy who makes Christianity legal across the empire. And uh, he theoretically converted. There's arguments back and forth about that. But certainly in the 12th century, everyone knew that Constantine was a great saint and a holy figure and sent by God. And so that 
element of it goes into Arthur, and that's 8%, again, according to Miles Russell. Uh, 24%, which seems high, comes from a guy named Arviragus, who is barely mentioned anywhere, as far as I can tell. Historically, he's mentioned as the kind of guy that might make trouble for uh, Domitian in 95 AD, but the legends put him 50 years earlier fighting Claudius when Claudius invades Britain, and he fights Rome. So again, he's fighting outsiders. He, he fights the Romans, just like Arthur does. Arviragus's great addition to the cycle is that he marries a princess named Genvissa, who is, according to Miles Russell, the ancestor of Guinevere. I think that you can argue back and forth about right. was Guinevere. Well, because that's where the 24 would come from. Right. If you're yeah. highlighting Jeffrey of Monmouth in mm-hmm. five different colors, and every bit that mentions Guinevere means Arviragus. That's right. how you get to 24. Exactly. Right. And Arviragus is also a legendary city founder, which is another thing that Arthur does in Jeffrey. Genvissa in the legend was the daughter of the emperor Claudius. So that's a lovely story. And for Shakespeare stands, Arviragus is the son of Cymbeline. So that's good fun. And the last guy, 12% of it is Cassivellaunus, who was the war leader, sort of the high king of Britain against Julius Caesar. And not only is he a high king, not only is a war leader, but he also is betrayed by his nephew, Mandubracius, which is where Arthur being betrayed by Mordred comes in in Geoffrey. So that's basically the set of figures that Miles Russell has identified as as your Geoffrey's King Arthur. And then the Lancelot and the Lady of the Lake and all that, that comes when the French start making up Arthur stories, which is another hundred years down the road. But this is the sort of core, the Galfridian Arthur, as people like to say, that people who are then trying to find, quote unquote, the real Arthur always dig through. Because again, besides Geoffrey and Nennius, you don't have anything. There, There is no historical Arthur. And again, that is because Caitlin Green is probably right. Arthur was a fictional character. He was a legend. And eventually he's historicized in the same way that in the, you know, third century BC, people were trying to historicize Heracles. And they were saying, well, we know there was a Tyrian prince named Heracles. Maybe that was our Heracles, or maybe there was two Heracleses. And of course they were doing this with the same exact motivation of trying to give themselves a reason to still love Heracles, even though they're beginning to speculate, mm, maybe he was just made up. And we don't want that because Heraclesing is a is big business. Yeah. That time he fought the vampire king played by Christopher Lee. When in history did when that happen? When in history did that happen? Well, obviously. Now, of course, uh, Steve wants us not just to uh, run through this theory, but to use it in a game. And there's a, I think, a more fanciful version. And uh, I'm going to start off with a straighter version, which is you could call this the Arthur origin cycle or possibly have a good title and <laughs> run a series of scenarios that are uh, have different pregens each time, but uh, presumably the same core group of players and run them through an Ambrosius scenario and then follow that up with, you know, the highlight of Magnus Maximus and then do a Constantine the Great scenario and have different sort of echoes and bits of imagery between them. And, uh, you know, your your stock comic relief character could be kind of the same in each one, but kind of quickly give your players a, a fun history lesson to the extent that we have enough information to, uh, you know, accurately portray any of these uh, moments in history and have, you know, a series of five uh, scenarios and possibly even then cap it off with a six where you actually have the, the good old knight in shining armor, Camelot, Ar- Arthur, who's, uh, 
you know, inexplicably wearing 13th century armor, even though he's fighting the Saxons. And the next way to do this would be sort of a Philip Jose Farmer thing where everybody who's been obsessed with kings and kingship and authority and rule after they die, they wind up in a weird afterlife where all five of these characters are fighting each other. They control different fiefdoms. And, you know, you decide which of them to go uh, align yourself with uh, in the ultimate battle of the uh, of the network Arthurs. Right. Either you can do that in a Philip Jose Farmer Riverworld type setting, or, of course, you could have a bunch of claimants to some magical Arthurian throne in the modern era. This could be sort of a unknown armies type thing, or it could be a more straightforward. You could even do it as Nephilim if you wanted to, where... It's the various individual examples of the historical Arthur are trying to be written into the statosphere, written into the mythology as the real Arthur. And so uh, each of them has their own cult and each of them has their own claimants. And you, the player characters, get to decide, well, if, you know, the mystical throne of Britain is open, why shouldn't we have it? And then, you know, your your choices, either as to which group to bully and take over or you find some sixth Arthur and you say, I'm going to be, you know, Lucas Artorius Castus, the Roman guy whose name is con- conveniently Arthur, who is, you know, in the second century AD and he's up on the Hadrian's wall. And we're going to, you know, bully all the other Arthurs out with that. In uh, Pendragon, I think that you could maybe present, if you wanted to, a notion of some sort of doom that has followed all of the previous kings, uh, the, the doom that has followed Cassivellaunus of being betrayed, the doom of Arviragus, the doom of Constantine, the doom of uh, Max and Wledig, and then the final doom of Ambrosius Aurelianus, who is either Uther Pendragon or a close personal friend of his. And then you realize, oh, this is coming for our King Arthur because his uh, curse, maybe it's the Fae, maybe it's Satan, we don't know, something bad, is, is cursing all of these figures and Arthur is next and we have to assemble the bits of all of them to make a make a fake Arthur that the Doom can attack so that then we can, you know, strike at it and prevent it from getting the, the, re- the real, proper, true Arthur. I think that would be fun. You could also do a time travel super team where the players can be these different characters. Uh, you might have to make some accommodations for people who want <laughs> well, to Well, we've got a fighter. That. We've got a fighter. We've got a fighter and a barbarian. So that's a pretty balanced group. Yes. And also you've got a Roman, a Roman Britain, a Roman Britain. And so, you know, Gen Visa might be one of the player characters and you <laughs> need to draw in some other rulers from elsewhere as possible choices. But you could, you know, they could be plucked from their various points in history to... Uh, you know, fight alien invaders, or they could all gain superpowers and uh, uh, turn the tide of World War II for the Allies. There's all sorts of uh, different possibilities. And of course, there's the Arthurian legend of, you know, Arthur isn't dead, he's just sleeping in a hill. And at a dire time, he comes out of the hill and maybe five hills open and all the others are looking at each other going, what? And Constantine in particular, I think, is surprised to find himself on a on a hill near Surrey. Although, interestingly, the first king sleeping in a hill, which is not part of the Geoffrey Arthur necessarily, is a guy named Constantius, who is one of Constantine's relatives, who was, you know, acclaimed king of Britain by the legions, and then died. And everyone was like, oh, he'll come back. He was just over in France doing stuff. And and, uh, so that is the original, and that's a sixth Arthur, and that's the one that's sleeping in a hill. 
and you know you can you can uh cherry pick this down as as far as you want i mentioned ashley's mammoth book of arthur i think it has 30 different historical arthurs that you can pick and choose from you don't necessarily have to be bound by miles russell's five not least because as we mentioned they are all kind of samey samey <laughs> well before the uh, arthurs all get offended by that characterization and come out of their hills to attack this podcast I think it's time for us to sneak into another, uh, uh, perhaps one near the banks of the sand. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make the choice to keep this podcast going alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Alexander Araballo, Trung Boy. Jane McDowell. Robert Wolf, And Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover. The crudités, not to say crudity, and the folks in fine evening wear gazing through their lorgnettes and opera glasses at us Tell us we've once more stumbled, drunk and confused, into the Culture Hut. And in the Culture Hut, beloved Patreon backer Ruth Tillman draws to our attention the French actress and larger-than-life figure Sarah Bernhardt sculpted a self-portrait in which she is a chimera, and it's an inkwell. How would you use this in the Yellow King RPG? And, uh, yeah, you're not wrong. She did that. <laughs> yes. So if you just type in Sarah Bernhardt Sphinx Inkwell, you will come up with a number of images of this really uh, cool, great item. It was cast, and therefore there are multiples of it. If you want our full profile of Sarah Bernhardt, though, and haven't heard it and want to start there, go back and dial up episode uh, 388. So we're not going to cover her whole biography again. She was born in 1844. She had a long life uh, up until 1923. And she was the world's basically first international entertainment superstar. She was the original Madonna, the Lady Gaga, the Meryl Streep. And she is mentioned, of course, in, in the Paris book of the uh, Yellow King role-playing game. And in fact, even this sculpture is mentioned in the brief entry because it is so freaking cool and so on point for the Yellow King. So among her many accomplishments, Sarah Bernhardt is sort of the first goth. 
She often plays in roles that have sort of a, a supernatural or gothic element to it. Uh, famously, she sleeps in a coffin, mm -hmm. which uh, makes us all go, hmm. And she's set up in The Yellow King as a possible patron for the player characters that uh, the inkwell means that she, while being given many possible plays to read, rashly reads uh, the play, but she uh, isn't driven in beyond uh, the realm of reality or uh, attacked by the king in yellow, but rather rallies and looks out for art students who might be interested in this cool inkwell and uh, come to her and then she sends them on uh, missions against the uh, minions of Carcosa. And so the real story behind this inkwell, which, as you mentioned, has bat wings and griffin claws, uh, the pen goes in the hair uh, and the ink is in a bowl at her feet under uh, books and a skull. So she's really, you know, she really wanted this to be covered on this podcast. Yeah, that's for right. sure. Her sculpting career, her little sideline into sculpting, she's, uh, you know, she's not just promoting NFTs, man. She's She really goes and becomes a quite accomplished sculptor. She does this in the uh, 1870s, so it's about a, a generation before the events of the Yellow King. So it might be a matter of her pulling some of these things down from a shelf. Oh, I remember when I was a sculptor. She took a studio in 1873, and she has a number of other works, which, of course, you can check out with a Google image search, and they're quite compelling. They have a very cool sort of symbolist Art Nouveau kind of creepy, decadent style to them. And uh, despite the fact that she was uh, not only a celebrity, an already famous person muscling in on the uh, visual art scene, which, of course, has happened again and again in, in history. There's all sorts of people who start in acting and then, you know, paint and exhibit their works. So she was... Like uh, people people don't believe that George W. Bush is a painter first and a president no, and, second. I don't believe And certainly Sarah Bernhardt was never a, a sculptor yeah. first, but she was quite accomplished. They're, they're uh, very cool. And uh, she showed at the Salon in Paris, the annual big competitive art show, which was a a huge deal to get accepted there. Yeah. You know, that lots of people got rejected and she had a smash show in London. But of course, there was pushback from the art establishment and she was a woman. So, of course, this was uh, another reason for her to face uh, skepticism. And not only that, but she published a photo of herself in her sculpture workshop and she's wearing trousers. So that, of course, caused, oh. you know, the, uh, Le yes, the, the 1870s version of people being mad on Twitter. Right. It's like uh, Lady Gaga's meat suit, but you could just wear exactly. pants. Exactly. It was it. easier to offend people in 1873. Uh -huh. So her figure that she showed at the salon is like a multiple figure uh, work called After the Storm. And she mentions in her biography that doubts were raised about this. Is there any need to say that I was accused of having got someone else to make this group for me? I sent a summons to one critic. Uh, which is good if you have sufficient stature that you can summon your critics to <laughs> be held mm -hmm. to account. He was no other than Jules Clarité, who declared that this work, which was very interesting, could not have been done by me. Jules Clarité apologized very politely, and that was the end of it. So she I'm had wondering to, if that was a legal summons that she sent to Jules Clarity then. It's like, well, Jules, I've got the money to sue your ass, and you're you, a sculpture you make critic. It an, you, you make it, uh, both an important and probably true and, and less colorful point. That's good. Yeah, well, that's that's what we do here. Yeah. So the uh, the chimera is more often referred to as a sphinx, and that's because it was inspired by her uh, 1874 role in a play called The Sphinx by a writer named Octave Fouillet. And this is available in English in its novella adaptation. 
which right up top, I'm going to tell you, I've skimming would exaggerate how much time I spent on it. <laughs> but the key point is that it's not a supernatural work, but rather a metaphor for the impenetrable, tormenting nature of the uh, lead character in this sort of romantic drama among uh, the aristocracy that Bernhardt played on stage. Other works that are of, of interest to uh, possibly create a scenario hooks, she did an Ophelia, which is a striking relief of Ophelia, uh, drowning in a sort of ecstatic expression. And uh, one of her uh, breasts is exposed because, of course, one exposed breast is uh, iconic in art. You know, two is salacious, but one is art. And also she did a bust of Hermione, who's the uh, daughter of Menelaus and Helen, and the uh, character in Racine's Andromache. She saw a production of it in 1873, and that's what inspired the sculpture. Uh, and then later she played in it many years later. So these are all things that you can, uh, they're all very striking. Uh, you can uh, use them as uh, sort of inspiring images for different scenarios, especially if, as I mentioned before, she's assigning the player characters uh, to go out and, and fight uh, the forces of the King in Yellow and Camilda and Casilla. Yeah, she, um, I, I think, to begin with, as you mentioned, she's doing these sculptures based on things that she's seen or played. So you could definitely say that somewhere in her sculptures, there is a sculpture of Casilda or Sarah Bernhardt as Casilda, perhaps. And that that's, you know, a locus of some sort of bad energy that maybe like the Sphinx, it's used to uh, divert the attention of the king from her. She was clever enough to figure out, oh, I've read the play. I'm going to be haunted forever by grub people unless I can turn that magic somewhere else. I'll just make a sculpture and that will be the, you know, the, the thing that draws the, the energies away. And I feel like maybe you begin with, uh, maybe not this inkwell, but you could use this inkwell. It, it gets stolen from her. You know, bad guys broke in and, and stole the thing and they could either be regular bad guys who just wanted to sell Sarah Bernhardt sculptures to rich, creepy collectors, or they could be you know, agents of Carcosa that know that there is a, a reservoir of Carcosan power somewhere in her sculptures. And this is the inciting incident she calls on the player characters, especially that one to whom, you know, you were so kind uh, those uh, months ago. No, we shan't talk about it anymore. I've moved on. So have you. But get my sculptures back, won't you? And that, you know, I, I think the notion of depending on how many of these you fall in love with, you could, in theory, have each of them, because they've been sitting on the shelf with the Carcosa sculpture, they're all drawing up their art. So the Sphinx sculpture, while it's in Sarah's cabinet, doesn't do anything much. But when it's out in the wild, then people start having to answer riddles or throw themselves off buildings or, you know, have inappropriate thoughts about their mom. And that is the sort of energy that, you know, starts you off, you're hunting down all these sculptures, weird stuff is happening around them. So, you know, the Ophelia sculpture is causing people to go mad and drown. And the uh, Hermione sculpture is, you know, if it's out there, well, Paris is like kind of a new Troy, maybe it'll doom Paris and you'd better, you know, hunt it down and, and, uh, and rescue it before bad stuff happens. Um, and you can play with all of those as story elements or, you can just present a Sphinx slash Chimera Sarah Bernhardt Tulpa that is, you know, created by this sculpture and by people creepily obsessing about it. And then it's out there hunting around. And Sarah's, of course, she, you know, she's a, above suspicion in this matter, at least. And so you have to track it down without 
damaging the sculpture because Sarah forbids that. And you have to, maybe you have to sculpt a new one in her style that you can then swap out to destroy the original to stop the tulpa. So it could be any number of different possibilities, but I think right. those, which is easier if you just get the mold. Yeah. Right. Well, sure. <laughs> well, but, getting the mold, you know, that, that can still be a challenge. That's a challenge, especially since most of them are made of plaster and got broken up when the uh, sculpture was made. And since this is a physical object that uh, comes down to our times, it can, it can recur as a sort of a, a signpost in your later sequences of the King in yellow. So the soldiers, in the wars can find it in a uh, bombed out cathedral and uh, realize that in order to disperse the Carcosan energies that are uh, affecting this entire village, that they have to retrieve it and get it back to a, a safe place where it can be uh, contained according to the uh, rules of Le, Le Science Jean. And in aftermath, it can uh, show up as a, a looted treasure that a, a member of the previous regime is uh, trying to uh, pawn off in order to make money to set up a, a hideout and avoid uh, the uh, the authorities in the uh, new democratic America. And then finally, in This is Normal Now, there can be an art auction where people have the opportunity to buy this inkwell, but something weird is happening. So you can have it be the, the basis of one of those satisfying callbacks that uh, reverberates. Uh, through all of the four of the, of the settings. Yeah, and it can, you know, provide a, re a reason for a particular bad guy to come back, not just Camilla or Casilla, but the Sphinx can keep recurring because she's given energy by this sculpture, and so she can't be stopped, again, because for some reason you can never quite get around to destroying the sculpture. Right. Uh, well, the Sphinx distracts you with riddles, and it's very very annoying. Mm -hmm. and, and very inappropriate thoughts about your parents. Right. And, of course, another cool thing could be just that message is written in ink, with the pen and the inkwell, gather a certain Carcosan supernatural uh, power. So that that could be it, right? That if you write something down using this inkwell, do you just summon the Sphinx or do you cause a reality shift? There's all sorts of uh, possibilities that you could look at if it's more than just a locus of energy, but rather has its yeah. own. Is it a way for you to write a play that will itself appear in Carcosa and attempt to do counter-memetic warfare? It could be the secret weapon you need to complete the whole uh, sequence. Uh, well, once we've gotten to a, a secret weapon that uh, ends the entire campaign, it's time for us to end this segment and see what waits for us on the other side. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. 
Sweetness. Vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass. A woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione. Crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Johannath Lai and the sea. The child. A traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. Once more, we wander into a hut whose purpose and meaning is not immediately apparent because it's it sort of sits on the boundary of many other different huts, yet is its own hut. But when we look at the window, we see an alien big cat screaming on the moors, and they are over in the corner, uh, once again, sitting up at attention because they know that they're going to be talked about a lot in this particular segment because they've seen the script. It's the gray alien. It's the Nordic alien. They're sipping kombucha, and their ears are burning to the extent that they have ears, which uh, I don't think the gray alien really does. But at any rate, they know that beloved Patreon backer Keelan O'Hay wants to know what makes New Mexico so attractive to aliens. With the Roswell and Aztec crashes, the mythical Dulce base, and the space tree signed at Holloman, or maybe in Los Alamos, New Mexico seems to have something that keeps bringing aliens to us, possibly something that keeps shooting them down. Can New Mexico aliens? UFOs? What? What? Well, we could literally fill a podcast this long, uh, not just a hut, but a whole podcast with weird stuff about New Mexico. So I guess... To begin with, I'll mention that the National UFO Reporting Center, which, you know, one hesitates to use the word rigorous, but it's what we got, counts up a total of 1,535 sightings of UFOs in New Mexico. That's a lot. Obviously, Patreon backer Keelan mentions Roswell and Aztec. Uh, Roswell crashed 1947. The Aztec crashed 1948. The Dolce base which is part of the Air Force disinformation campaign. But uh, allegedly, in 1979, there is a battle between the gray aliens held at an underground base near Dulce, New Mexico, and the U.S. Special Forces. And possibly the grays are mad because the supply of strawberry ice cream was cut off. Possibly they were mad because the supply of human sacrifices were cut off. Who can say? But in addition to all of those things, there's also the 1880 airship of Galisteo. There is the probably one of the largest UFO sightings, uh, the UFO Armada over Farmington, New Mexico in 1950, uh, Farmington, where my grandparents lived, by the way. So I'm well aware. Holloman Air Force Base, not just the place where the Greys met Ike and signed a treaty, or maybe they met Nixon in 1971 and signed a treaty, or maybe they met some other person, the head of Majestic 12, and signed a treaty. Uh, also, the sighting of a fireball, a green fireball in 1951, and a standard UFO sighting in 1957. There are major abductions, the Jonathan Lovett abduction and mutilation at White Sands in 1956, the Charles Moody abduction at Alamogordo in 1975. There is a famous close encounter of the second kind, where a patrolman named Zamora in Socorro, New Mexico in 1964 sees a silver spherical craft on board two aliens and lift off in a fiery rocket exhaust type thing, which has led unkind people to say that Zamora just saw a regular old rocket. And so what's the problem? You're in New Mexico. And then, of course, most recently, there was a giant cylinder to take us back to the Galisteo airship uh, seen by an airliner pilot uh, as they flew over Clayton, New Mexico. They saw a giant cylinder fly overhead. So we've got vast quantities of stuff. And I think that the words white sands 
Almagordo and Los Alamos maybe uh, provide a little bit of information as to why the aliens are so het up about New Mexico, because that's where we've been doing all of our nukes and uh, our rockets and whatnot. And the aliens are concerned that uh, mankind will, you know, uh, misuse those toys. I think that's your classic aliens. Uh, the gray aliens just seem to, you know, want to mess with people. And that's right. why they but, have to but be. The Nordic aliens, who, of course, are, are peaceful space brothers, mm. have been textually very concerned about uh, nukes and have yep. expressed that a lot of times. So mm-hmm. that makes a, a lot of sense and explains because otherwise you would just go desert. Deserts are eerie, especially at night. Uh, the mind can wander, possibly wander into an ultra-terrestrial space. But that would, you know, New Mexico is not the only desert area in the Southwest. So obviously it is the presence of uh, the, the nuclear program has to be their, their answer to that. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't necessarily explain the Galisteo airship or any of the other weird stuff about New Mexico. But... I feel well, once like once it becomes a tourist attraction yeah. and once it's in the guidebooks, people go. Yeah. But I feel like you can go, you know, one layer below that and say the reason that we set up the Trinity site, as people will point out on the same line of uh, latitude that Dealey Square in Dallas is on the 33rd degree north. It had to be set up there for mystical ley line type reasons. And then you get into things like the Anasazi and the Chaco Canyon Kivas and all the other uh, sacred cities built out by the Navajo back in the, what do you want to say, 12th century, circa, give or take. And so the notion of the lost city of, of Kavira maybe was in New Mexico. It was probably in Kansas, but, you know, let's not stop the roll. So there's all manner of previously existing magics and sorcerous energies that Oppenheimer was smart enough to tap into when he builds the A-bomb and that the A-bomb is actually also a demonic. And I, you know, let's not put a normative term on this. Just it's used powered by demons a ritual as well. And that that's, for example, why the Pentagon has got five sides is to keep the, all the demons that you wake up in New Mexico uh, imprisoned. And that's part of the connection as well is that New Mexico, that's why they've got, you know, ghosts and uh, La La Rona, is in New Mexico sometimes. There's all manner of stuff in New Mexico. It's a, it's a, it's an American state, by golly, and right. that means they see stuff. And that's what's fun about it is that it's most of this stuff is comparatively recent. So in all the works of Charles Fort, New Mexico gets one mention <laughs> for unprecedented snow. <laughs> so not exactly the most terrifying paranormal event. Uh, but as you mentioned, there are other ghosts in addition to La Llorona. Now many of these ghosts seem to haunt hotels and other businesses in the hospitality industry that happen to have historic sites. So there can't be any common thread there, you know, but uh, there's Irene, the maid who haunts the hotel Eklund on the highway. You've got the ghost of Julia Staub at the La Posada Santa Fe hotel. Uh, It was formerly the mansion her husband built for her. And she's seen in morning clothes. The second coolest ghost of New Mexico uh, his sister George, the cigar smoking nun mm-hmm. who uh, haunts a former girls' academy, which is now an inn and spa in uh, Santa Fe. And I don't think he has anything to do with UFOs, but since we're not going to mention paranormal uh, New Mexico again anytime soon, we got to mention the headless ghost of the train robber Black Jack Ketchum because he haunts the Union County District Court. Uh, no doubt he's complaining about the shoddy uh, work that went into his execution where the hanging decapitated him. So. Uh, he's basically looking for the complaints department, which is difficult to do when your head is missing. Yeah. And I should, I should mention that, uh, if you are 
interested in the sort of uh, fractal nature of the weirdness in New Mexico, there's a guy named Christopher O'Brien, who is a paranormalist, UFOlist, ufologist, whatever he is. He lives in the San Luis Valley, which is runs from New Mexico into Colorado, and he's written two big books, so like 600 and some pages on the San Luis Valley, uh, the mysterious valley and enter the valley. And that goes in much, much depth and much, much detail. It, it's kind of fun because he, on the one hand says, yeah, you keep looking for stuff. You keep finding stuff. I, I live here. I can look all day. And then also he, you know, has to sell the book. So he talks about, oh, mysterious, you know, earth patterns and whatnot. So again, we can't, you know, we, we can't spend this whole show talking about New Mexico. He's, he's working the ground that Charles uh, Fort left fallow. Exactly. He's, his, his stuff is exactly as fun as you want it to be. Let's just say that about Christopher O'Brien. And if you want more New Mexico nonsense, check out his books. So you can easily do like a Hellmouth or Station yeah, Duty. Absolutely. You definitely. New Mexico. Yeah, no question. And, you know, it's almost ground zero for the cattle mutilations. Those begin in uh, Colorado, but they're the same valley. And just over the border, New Mexico had plenty of cases of it. Basically, anything you want, there's been some version of that in New Mexico. And I'm sure that somewhere there's, I mean, there's, you know, a serial killer ran back and forth in New Mexico. You know, the Anasazi famously were cannibals. There's lots of, uh, you can do a whole X-Files that's just the New Mex files, basically, and uh, never run out of fun stuff. And the question is, is your campaign about uncovering whatever that is? Is there some sort of buried uh, giant from the beginning of the world there that the Navajo try to warn us about? Or is there a crashed UFO from ancient times from, you know, 4000 BC or something that a UFO crashed and its uh, energies have been powering this lay grid? Or is it just, oh, no, the devil is there. Just like we said, that's why we name all these mountains the blood of Christ. And uh, that should be a, a warning to you to not mess with them. And so uh, there's, I, I think there's a just a lot of good stuff going on. And really, you're spoiled for choice in terms of what's the cause of it. Yeah. And you could do it contemporary. It could be uh, Moondust Man. It could be Fall of Delta Green. There's all uh, sorts of uh, ways uh, to go with that. Yep. And you get the green chili. Yes, exactly. And with uh, so many choices available to you, I think we'll leave listeners to mull them all over for another week. And then we'll return with even more choices. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Green Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from unprecedented snow by joining such backers as... Ian Neistrom. Yuri Horneman. Kelly Fisher. Theron Bratz. And Craig Maloney. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Ingest the Eldritch Cappuccino Foam with our latest design If it's coffee, I'll drink it. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. Stuff.